have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter, and I hope you'll be able to follow along in your copy of God's Word, and if you didn't bring a copy, we have copies of the Scriptures in the pew in front of you, and I want you to be able to eyeball it. If I counted correctly, this is message number 39, and the last one um, from 1 Peter for, for a while. Um, you may not have been here for all 39. We started it on Wednesday nights virtually in March, and then we moved it to Sunday nights, and then we moved it to Sunday mornings, and then we're going to move on. <laughs> so that's the plan. But I've, I've grown to just love this book uh, more than ever. Page 1014 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures. By the way, for those of you that are unaware of our brother Bob Arters and what took place yesterday, I'm going to let um, Joyce share the story, but there is a really cool story for um, how it all happened and what the Lord did in, in taking care of Bob, um, but she wants to share it, so she reminded me of that twice, so I'm not going to beat her to it, but it's a good story. She just texted me and said that Bob's up this morning, had breakfast, and, and doing a lot better. He, he took a really, really bad fall yesterday, out leaving breakfast from a, a restaurant in Lancaster County, or Lancaster, and um, broken ribs, had some brain, brain bleed as a result of a, a really bad concussion. Um, it was really looking very scary there for a little while. Praise God. Um, it, it appears that he's going to rebound. And uh, Joyce is doing well, so that's the update there. First Peter. Here's the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, elect, are the exiles, the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, now verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, Messiah, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure, sincere heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glories like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, living, him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scriptures, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from his own possession, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, or it, if you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By Jesus' wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without the word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil to do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, 
they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt, exalt you, casting all your anxieties, all your cares, all your worries on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings that you face are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now to our text for this morning. You patiently waited. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's the word of the Lord. Wonderful book, amen? Recent studies, and I don't know where you fall on this, and you don't need to indicate it, but recent studies of Americans found that 91% of those surveyed believe that the best way to discover your identity, your true self, was looking within. In other words, if you want to discover 
who you are and what your purpose in life is, the place to look is inside of your own self. Do you agree with that statement? Do you agree that if you really want to understand who you are and your identity, it's something that is kind of self-generated, self-discovered? It reminds me of a quote that I heard, and I tried to discover who was the author of this quote or who spoke it. I heard it on a news channel the other day when I was having my car repaired, and I thought, wow, that's true. And the person was just commenting on the world that we live in. And the, the quote is this, the world is becoming a chat room, and we're all becoming avatars. Now, I didn't know till a couple years ago, maybe even less than that, what an avatar was. And an avatar, as I understand it, according to my upgrade on my iPhone, is the ability to take my emojis and make them look like myself. And so you can have an avatar that kind of looks like you, and I've tried, and even my family doesn't think that my avatar looks like me, but you can choose the hair style and the face contours, and that's your avatar. It's, it's your image online. An avatar goes beyond that, though. An avatar is what we like to think that we are, and we like to think is our identity. In social media, it's how you project yourself. Those of you that are involved in social media perhaps know what I'm talking about. There's something about social media that you can make yourself and your family and your hobbies and your, your life look like something that ought to be on the Hallmark Channel. I mean, you can digitally enhance everything. I've told you before, I've never been in an argument with my lovely wife, Becky. It's always my fault, but I've never been in an argument with my lovely wife and said, let's take a picture, post it on Facebook, and tell everybody we just had an argument. No, we don't do that. We post pictures of how loving and how romantic we are. Those are the kinds of pictures you post. That's our avatar. That's our image. That's what we like for everybody to think is our identity. Where do you go to know your real identity? As Peter closes this letter, he is going to give them one more command. It's right in the heart of our text. Stand firm in it. What's the antecedent to it? The grace of God. Do you see that? So we looked last week at the God of all grace, and he says that I have declared to you, I have exhorted you, I have taught you this one true grace. Now you need to stand in it. In other words, your identity needs to be found in Christ. Our identity is not found in our accomplishments, not in our social status, not in the color of our skin or our gender. Our identity is to be found in Christ. And so he's saying, stand firm in this. Now, if you get the picture of someone who's standing on something, maybe one of these very thin boards and there, being, there, there are others that are trying to knock them off of this board. And that's the picture here. There's suffering, there's struggles with your flesh. We just read about it. Those themes come up over and again in 1 Peter. And you've got to stand in your identity in Christ because suffering and struggle with your flesh always trying to knock you off of your identity in Jesus. So I want to take this PS, this postscript, and I promise you that Hopefully the message may be, well, I'm not going to say it's going to be shorter than the scripture reading, but it's going to be close. Three closing thoughts here with this postscript that Peter adds to this. It's a faithful brother he's going to talk to us about. He's going to give us a final reminder, and then he's going to talk about a filial or familial or family gesture that we ought to be participating in. 
So first of all, he's going to talk about this faithful brother. Now in verse 12, what is probably happening here is Peter has been dictating of sorts this letter to Silvanus, who's been writing it down. This was very normal in first century um, authorship of books and letters. These professional scribes would take down the dictation, they would smooth out the Greek, and they would make it intelligible. Then they would take their document, they would give it back to the author, and they would say, is this approved? Now some of us hear that and we say, well, I thought this was inspired, and like every word, every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, absolutely. Second Timothy tells us that very clearly. But he didn't dictate it in a machine way, in a mechanical way. He used the personalities and the experiences of these disciples, these apostles, these Bible writers. And you see that influence. In fact, that's one of the reasons why 1 Peter is attacked by liberals. And when I refer to liberals, I'm not talking about politically. I'm talking about those who don't believe the Bible is truly the word of God. Those kinds of liberals, theological liberals. They will attack the book and say, this Greek is way too smooth for a fisherman. I mean, this is Peter. This Greek is way too smooth. I mean, it's way too eloquent. He couldn't have written it. Well, if you understand that what we refer to as an amanuensis or one of these secretaries, one of these who would, would smooth out the Greek, it's very understandable that Peter did indeed write it. He takes credit for it throughout this book and the second epistle. But this faithful brother he calls Silvanus. Something you may not know, but you ought to do a little more research. I'm just going to tell you this because you're going to find it to be true, that this is actually Silas. This is the partner with Paul who was singing in the Philippian jail. Remember that in Acts 16? This is Silas. This is Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is the Latin trans, trans, um, translation of that name, uh, transliteration of that name. And so basically what you have here is a double name is in harmony with his Roman citizenship. So he is both Silas and Silvanus, and it actually comes from the Aramaic of Saul, the Jewish name. So Silas is Silvanus. Now why should that be important to us? Just remembering that the great apostle Paul, who was the apostle to the who? The Gentiles, and Peter the apostle to the... They have the same... One of the same partners in ministry. Another reminder of the unity of the body of Christ. And here Peter is saying, Silvanus has helped me. And in book of Acts, we see that Silas is used to this thing. He takes letters and he delivers them to places like Jerusalem. And so he was both an amanuensis. He was a secretary who took down dictation. He also was the messenger who would be in charge of taking this letter. Remember, there were no chapters. There were no verse breaks. He would take this letter and they would go to all these churches that are mentioned early on in the book. Remember the intro? Now, I don't know if he took that same letter, that same scroll to each of those local churches, or probably more than likely, as a scribe, he made copies. And he was in charge of the administration of making sure that all these churches got this letter. But I want you to see what Peter calls him. He says he's a faithful brother as I regard him. What a wonderful epitaph that would be. What a wonderful compliment. He's a faithful brother. And this is something that I regard him. Now, what does this word faithful mean? It means to have reliable character. And the churches obviously knew Silvanus. They knew Silas. 
And so he was reminding them that Silas was a faithful brother. He was one that he regarded this way. Do you see the word regard in your translation if you have an ESV? We get our English word logarithms from that. You math people know that that's a mathematic, arithmetic word. And he's saying that he actually calculated this. This was subjective observation of the way that Silas lived his life, and he came to this conclusion. He's a faithful brother. He's a person who can be relied upon. He's a person that you could, you could actually count on. Have you ever thought about how much you really do trust people that you never will meet? For instance, when you're headed home and you're headed on a two-lane road and you have traffic coming at you, they're going 35, 45, 55, 60 miles an hour, you're trusting that they're going to stay in their what? <laughs> their lane, okay? And most of the time they do, but, but there are times where, where that trust was ill-placed because that person might be intoxicated, they might not have a license, they may not know what they're doing, they might be distracted, might be working on their avatar for their whatever, okay? So, but generally speaking, we're going down the road and we're trusting that this person is going to do the right thing and they're not going to come in my lane. Well, a lot of those little reliabilities is what builds the character of a person that you could say is a faithful brother or a faithful sister. And in Paul's last letter to his protege, Timothy, he said it this way in 2 Timothy 2.2, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. What kind of premium do we put on the characteristics of just being faithful? Simply being reliable? Or do we find ourselves, because we love to digitally enhance the avatar, I, I want to be doing big things. I want to be doing things in front of people. I want to get recognized. Well, what about a Sylvanus? It's a faithful brother. Everybody knows it. Everybody in all these churches, he's got a reputation. He just does what he's asked. I've shared this proverb with you before, but I, I, it's so visual, as most of the proverbs are. But in Proverbs, we're told that confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. You've experienced that before? Foot out of joint, broken tooth, you're trying to chew your food, and it's not working. You're trying to walk, and it's not going well. That's what it's like to put your trust and confidence in somebody who's not trustworthy. So the question for us as the people of God is, could this be said about us? Do you want it to be said about you? Well, it's simply the character that says, I'm not worried about my image and my avatar and my public identity. I'm concerned about being faithful in the little things that God has called me to do. I want to be a faithful sister. I want to be a faithful brother. I want to be reliable. You know, many of us long to follow Jesus more closely, but are we more focused on our, our, the big opportunities rather than these little ordinary, mundane, day-by-day, year-by-year, month-by-month opportunities? They're not grandiose. They're not dramatic. They're inconspicuous opportunities. They're behind the scenes. Now, think about it. How could you be more faithful today, this week, this month, what does God ask you to do that you've been putting aside and procrastinating because it's not up front, there's no show, in fact, no one's going to know you did it, ever acknowledge you accomplished it, 
but you know that God wants you to do it. What if we committed as a local church that in this new fresh year, we're going to look for ways to be faithful regardless of anybody who notices us, faithful no matter if it's in the front or more importantly, and according to the context, those behind-the-scenes moments. I mean, here's the great apostle Peter. He's written a book. He's written a letter. He's written two. He's really written three because Mark, we'll find in just a minute, was the one who wrote down the second gospel from Peter's preaching. Here's Silvanus mentioned in the postscript. And what is Silvanus known for? He's faithful. Let's be faithful to serve even when we don't have a better offer, even when only God will know we did it. You remember in 1 Corinthians 4, this is what Paul says, it's required of stewards to be found what? Faithful. I've told you this story before, but I love telling it. Ari Torrey was D.L. Moody's assistant for years. And in their many campaigns, evangelistic campaigns, um, Ari Torrey was, was a type A person from all I can gather. He wanted to see results. And there was this one campaign that they had, evidently in Chicago, and Moody preached. According to Torrey, there was great conviction of souls, and there were many unsaved people there, but no one moved. When Sankey played his organ, no one came forward. They went back to the hotel, and according to Tory in his book on prayer, he says, I said to Dr. Moody, he says, you know, Dr. Moody, it was obvious conviction there, and, and there was obviously many souls that needed to be awakened, but nobody moved. And Moody said to Tory, God's called us to be faithful, not necessarily fruitful. Let's go upstairs and go to bed. This happened three nights in a row. More unsaved people. Obvious conviction. No one responding to the gospel. Same thing. Dr. Moody. So many unsaved, they were convicted, the preaching was powerful, nobody moved. God's called us to be faithful, not necessarily fruitful, let's go upstairs and go to bed. Last night, according to Tory, we would call it, it broke. Many sinners who needed to repent and place their complete confidence in Jesus Christ were saved that night, gloriously saved. And Tory says in his books, he says, I was so ecstatic, I could hardly stay on the ground. We got back to the hotel, in the foyer, same place as each night, and I said, Dr. Moody, isn't it wonderful? So many souls saved and ushered into the kingdom. Moody, with the same face and the same tone, says, Tori, God's called us to be faithful, not necessarily fruitful. Let's go upstairs and go to bed. Tori then says, he says, listen, if we're elated with success or cast down with failure, we're carnal. What he was saying is, if, if, if I'm only in it, if I can see some kind of success, something to show for my labor, that's not really dependence on just being faithful. It's a wonderful lesson. So, let's aspire to this. You say, well, I don't get to speak in front of people publicly, or maybe my ministry or my ministry gifts are really behind the scenes. What if we all longed for this? Well done, thou good and faithful servant there's a final reminder notice next he says i've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of god stand firm in it now he says something that perhaps you'll chuckle at perhaps you'll groan at 
I have written briefly to you. Every pastor preacher thinks that they do things brief, and this is often a lie. Um, not intentional most of the time. Um, pastors think they're brief. Peter thought he was brief, and I guess in terms of other letters in the New Testament, this was somewhat brief. But he says, here's what I was doing throughout the whole letter. I was doing two things. I was exhorting, look at it, I was exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, please look at your text. I want you to see this, and I want it to set expectations for this local church. What should be happening from your elders, from this pulpit, week after week? I, I believe these two verbals give us real direction here. If your expectations aren't biblical or my expectations aren't biblical, we're never going to agree on what we're supposed to be doing here every Lord's Day. But here's a great help. He says that I exhorted and I declared. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now the word exhort is a word that means to encourage, to persuade, or command. I don't have to remind you of this, but I will anyway. The book of 1 Peter is filled with commands. I just read some text to you that some of you, if you were honest, caused your dandra to rise up a little bit. These are not popular passages in our culture. And even among some Christians, they're like, you know, do you read that kind of stuff in public? Yes, we do. It's the words of God. So, so there, there is an exhortation here, but I want you to hear this. There was a persuasion to it. Now, how do you differentiate between preaching and teaching? Now, now, some people will say, you know, here's how you do it. If the guy got lathered up, pounded the pulpit, yelled, he was sweating, sweating so much he had to take his coat off. You can tell I grew up in the South. He was preaching. If he was just talking in quiet tones, he was teaching. Now, I don't believe it's so surfacy and so shallow. The difference isn't about tone, how much you sweat, or if you took your coat off, if you shucked the corn versus you just taught a homily. But what the difference is here is there's more than just giving content. Do you see? So he says, I persuaded, and the next word here, declaring, only used here in the New Testament, has the idea of stabilizing and firming up not just with content, but content is insinuated here. So preaching, teaching, has exhortation, it has persuasion, it has affirming up. So what you should be expecting is more than just content week after week. Now you should be expecting content because there's no way to firm you up unless we commit you to the word of his grace that will keep you from falling. Amen? So, so you need the didactic teaching of God's word. We need to catechize you, and we take that responsibility as elders very seriously here at East Brandywine. We can't wait till we can get back in the regular teaching and didactic ministry of the word. But what Peter is saying here is he, he exhorted them, he persuaded them. That's what we should expect. But he had a basic content, and what is that content? Look at it. The true grace of God. This is shorthand for the gospel. This is shorthand for the beginning of this book, all through the book. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, all the way to verse 12, he rehearses the big storyline of the scriptures. He rehearses the gospel. 
And he says, this is the grace of God. This is the true grace of God. Now question, if he said this is the true grace of God, that means there's another category. What is that other category? There's the true grace of God, which means there's the, the false grace of God. Okay, so there's a pseudo-gospel, there's a pseudo-grace. Paul says this to Timothy. He says that there are those that have turned, says this in Titus, they've turned the grace of God, right, into lasciviousness as a big King James word for lust and for desire, and they have perverted it. And people of God, you, you need to be careful. That's why I say bring your Bibles, Listen to the word. Make sure it's read and taught in context. Hold us accountable. Don't just assume because Brian Fuller says it that it's gospel because it might not be. I don't mean to scare you, but it might not be. He says there is, a, there is an untrue grace of God. and so, so there are those that twist the gospel. They manipulate the truth. But he said, I've given you the true gospel, and you need to stand in it. You need to stand in this grace. Now, he, he covers four areas of grace in the book. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm hoping to be encouraged here this morning. How many of you did your, home your homework assignment that I sent out in the All Things EBBC? Um, did you read 1 Peter and you marked in color code grace and glory and suffering? I can tell most of you did it. That's great. When you were, when you were doing your homework assignment late into the evening last night, um, I'm so proud of you. When you were doing that, did you notice when grace was mentioned, there are basically four major pillar principles that are taught in 1 Peter about the grace of God. Here they are real quickly. He says this is a saving grace. Immediately he says that this is the grace that rescued you. The angels and the prophets looked into this going, what is this? A suffering Messiah. Well, we know what it is. Our suffering Messiah rescued us. He made us who were not a people of God, now we are the people of God. So there's saving grace. Then there's sanctifying grace that's later mentioned in first chapter where he tells us that this grace teaches us that we are to be holy as he is holy. We're no longer to fashion ourselves according to the desires of this world. This world is no friend of grace. That hasn't changed, folks, in 2021. Then all of a sudden, the world's now our friend, okay? You say, are you being sarcastic? A little bit, okay? The, the world didn't become our friend when we turned the calendar. So there's sanctifying grace. Then there's also what we find in terms of the descriptions of grace in our study of 1 Peter is that this grace is not only saving and sanctifying, but remember 1 Peter 4, the King James calls it manifold grace, Buried grace, they're serving grace. Every believer has at least one gift. Some of us have more. Some of us have just one. We're like Barney Fife, we have one silver bullet. But you have one. And you are supposed to, and I'm supposed to, use those gifts that the Spirit has endowed you with either speaking gifts or serving gifts, or both, to edify the body and glorify Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And that is a demonstration of all his varied, manifold graces. So there's serving grace. And finally, there's sustaining grace. We looked at that last week. He's the God of all grace. He will sustain us through suffering. You remember last week, we put it together like this, that we should expect Christian, normal Christian experience to suffer. God will give us grace to persevere. 
And ultimately, we're going to enjoy eternal glory with him. You remember that? You don't? I preached on that last week. <laughs> so anyway, that was last week. Go back and listen to the tape. Um, but that was last week. Th these are the four different uh, areas of grace that are mentioned. But, but here's what I want to leave you with. I, I want to leave you with, is this where you find your identity? So is your avatar, your image, your identity placed in other things? Is that where your security is? I don't know about you, but the Lord in his grace, I was telling one of my children this the other day, the Lord in his grace this year, past 2020, took away some things in my life that I had put way too much confidence in. I'm not going to highlight them here because I don't know that that's helpful to you, but, but he, he took away some things in my life that I had too much confidence in. I was in the Proverbs 3 moment where I was leaning on my own understanding and my own security, was found in these items and these situations, and I don't have them anymore. And it's actually a wonderful place to be because those should have never been my identity. My identity as a child of God is in Christ. So I want to ask you a few questions. Are you a person who used to find fulfillment and identity in other things? Listen to this passage. You ought to write it down and just chew on it. And I want you to put your name in it. I'm going to do, put my name in it just now to help you. But Colossians 1.21 says this. And you, Brian who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I've done nothing to receive this grace. But right now, there are those of you that know some of my faults, and these people in the second row really know my faults. And they would say, I don't know that I agree that you stand blameless and without blemish, but I do. Because I'm in Jesus. And, and what he's saying, if you'll just flip back over in 1 Peter here, turn to chapter 2. We read it. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Here's who you are. You want to know what your identity is? It's not your job. It's not your accomplishment. It's not your wealth. It's not your color. It's not your gender. It's not your social status. You, verse 9 of chapter 2, but you. Why don't we say this together? But we. But we. Let's say it. But we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for his own possession. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the what? God's people. So this is your identity. And as believers, if we seek to find our identity anywhere else, it's really a, a case of spiritual amnesia. Some of us have, have, have experienced this. We're now empty nesters. And we're discovering that our identity was in having a house full of people to take care of. And now we don't know what to do with ourselves. Perhaps we've been blinded by the ladder of success. And now that COVID's hit and we don't have the leave home and go to the office regular schedule the Lord in his grace has taken away another piece of the avatar how are you doing with that well well here's what you can do with it you can go and park in another passage I'm going to give you and this is the last homework assignment it is Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14 here's who you are believer if you're trusting in Christ you've experienced his saving grace you have been accepted in the beloved so right now, 
you are as accepted as Jesus is. You've been adopted by the Father. You've been redeemed by the blood. You've been sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. Amen? That's who you are. Now, as a believer, I can rehearse my identity in Christ and therefore obey the command that Peter gives here, stand firm in it. So two wins that he deals with in this little letter that are going to push us off of standing in his grace. Here they are. Struggles with my flesh and suffering. Because intuitively, we always think that if I'm saved, I'm not going to struggle with my flesh as much, and certainly I'm not going to be going through deep waters of suffering. Wrong answer. Right? Romans 8 says, absolutely not. Romans 8 deals with both of those. Straightforwardly. This is the, the place you ought to go for assurance. Romans 8 says, don't be surprised with the struggle of the flesh. Don't be surprised that you're going to be groaning. The rest of the world is groaning looking forward to the day where all the sons of God and daughters of God are revealed. But Peter's saying, I've been talking to you about this now for five chapters. You're going to suffer. You're going to struggle with temptation. Am I the only one? I know I'm not. Do you have something inside of you that answers to sin? Do you have something inside of you that's flammable? Have you admitted that you do? I mean, the Lord has not, in his grace, eradicated your sin nature yet. That's coming. I love that hymn, that last stanza. Oh, the day when we're free from sinning. Amen? But we're not there yet. So you have something, I have something that's still flammable inside of me, but that should not cause me to lack the assurance of my identity in Christ. In fact, according to Galatians 5, it should remind me that the struggle reminds me that I'm his. That's why I cry out, Abba, Father. So stand in his grace. Stand in the identity you have in Christ. We have a faithful brother. We have this final reminder, and we finish with a filial gesture or a family gesture or a, what should we call this, a familial gesture, okay? Whatever you want to call it, all right? I'm trying to use my acrostic, I mean my... Um, um, alliteration here okay she who is at babylon who is likewise chosen sends you greetings and so does mark my son you see that in your text greet one another with a kiss of love all the teenagers perked up peace to all of you who are in christ first of all who's the she and who's the babylon real quickly there are different interpretations there are many that believe that the she that he refers to here is his wife now i don't believe that but Peter was married. We find that out because you have to have a wife if you have a mother-in-law. And we told in the Gospels that he had a mother-in-law. We're also told in 1 Corinthians 9 that he carried his wife around. That doesn't mean he carried her around, but she went with him on the evangelistic missionary journeys unlike some of the other apostles. I don't believe this is Peter's wife, number one. I don't believe that would be in keeping of 1 Peter 3, verse 7, to refer to your wife as the woman from Babylon. I don't believe that is loving your wife and understanding her. I don't think he would refer to her that way. Um, others believe that the she here is a famous woman in Rome that all the churches in Asia Minor would know. I, I find that hard to believe too, that the she here is a famous Christian woman in Rome that everybody, by reading just this pronoun, would know. Oh yeah, they're talking about sister so-and-so. I, I believe he's referring to the church here. Um, we see this again in the book of Revelation, book of Ephesians, that the church is referred to as a bride, as a woman. And, and here he says, 
the woman in Babylon. So what's Babylon? Well, some would say, well, he's referring to the Babylon where they were in exile, and he's referring to um, the place where Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were at, and we're talking about that Babylon in modern-day Iraq. No, I don't think so. Um, nor do I think he was talking about a city that was present-day Babylon in Egypt. I, I believe he's referring to Rome. He was writing this from Rome. And he is writing from Rome, and Babylon still has the connotation, as it did in the Old Testament, as the world system that opposes God. And so, just like Old Testament Babylon was the center of worldly power in opposition to God's people, so Rome, in this situation, represented that. And all through the book, the letter, he talks about being in exile. This brings back all that Old Testament imagery, right? Of being in exile and living as God's people. But look what he does here. He says, they're the elect too. They're the chosen woman in Babylon. He's saying these believers in Rome have a connection, a family connection with you all in Asia Minor. And we need to remember this to be true that, praise God, right now across the globe today, think of them as all these little these outposts, and they're all lit up around the globe. All of these local bodies of believers are meeting today on Lord's Day. But we're connected because we have the same Father. We have the same brother, Jesus Christ. We have the same Savior, the same Spirit. And one day we're all going to be together. Won't that be a glorious day? So he's saying, hey, hey, this is not like silo your group. Have your holy huddle. Remember, you got believers over here in Rome and they greet you. They're elect too. And then he mentions Mark. You'll notice he, he talks about Mark. This is John Mark. This is Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was an assistant to Peter. Remember Barnabas and Paul had a big fight over John Mark? Remember that? And John Mark is probably also the guy, just a Bible trivia fact of fun and to know and tell, is that he was the one, the disciple who ran away naked in the garden that you'll notice in the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of one of those um, um, cameo appearances, I guess you should say, uh, that, that Mark talks about. But, but Mark, he says, he says, Mark greets you as well. And he's reminding them about the connection they have. And then he says, I want you to greet one another with this kiss of love. Paul calls it a holy kiss. And I want to finish here. This is this filial gesture that he calls God's people to do. And some of you are going to say, we're in COVID, don't talk this way. Well, listen to me for a second. What he's talking about is an oriental custom. It was not a romantic kiss. I'm sorry to disappoint some of you. It was generally in the first century, men to men, ladies to ladies. But just like they do in the Orient today, they would grab each other by the shoulder. They'd kiss each other on each side of their face, on the cheek. And he's saying this is the same kind of affection that you need to keep showing. He wasn't just saying uphold an oriental tradition. And some of us say, well, we're, we don't do that kind of stuff. That's weird. We shake hands. And we don't even do that during COVID. We bump elbows or whatever. But, but I do want you to see this. There's something about this physical expression of friendship and fellowship and love and Christ that I don't think has to do with if you're from the south or the north or if you're touchy-feely and you're not. I just want you to think about this for a moment. Have you found that it's much harder to get mad at someone you just hugged or kissed? I have. I was just imagining this week, is there anyone in our fellowship, I'm not going to tell you if there was, is there anybody in our fellowship, our church, 
that, that if, I, if we weren't in COVID and I felt totally game to do it, that I would just say, brother or sister, I love you. And, and the people that I wouldn't want to do that to reveal some things in my heart. And I just want to give it to you. Who in our church would you say, I would not want to hug them until we get to heaven? <laughs> just don't want to do it. Um, think about that, though. What does it reveal about your heart? Because that physical expression, I'm not suggesting that from here on out, East Brandywine needs to start giving the holy kiss, okay? I'm not suggesting that, so please don't take that away. But I am saying to you, maybe a holy hug, maybe, maybe some affection that communicates, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're one family. God's brought us together. We have nothing else in common except Jesus. And this grace is demonstrated by our affection and our love for one another. See, in biblical terms, the people in the pews around us are our family. And just like your family, your biological family, you didn't have a choice in the matter. <laughs> Take a deep swig of that. You didn't have a choice in it. And if you did, you probably wouldn't have chose some of the people that are <laughs> beside you or in front of you. That's just the way it goes. But because we belong to Christ, we belong to his family. And all the various one another commands that we have in Scripture, here's one of them. It is a demonstration of our warmth and our love and affection for us. And I just want to challenge you with that. I'm not suggesting, again, that we adopt, particularly in this pandemic, a lot of physical expression. But I do want you to query your heart. What brother or sister would you run from before you'd hug them? And I think that would reveal some areas of bitterness, perhaps that you need to deal with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the peace that we have in Christ, the peace with you, the peace of God, and the peace with God. And it's all because of Christ. It's all because of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And we ask that you'd help us as your people to find our identity completely in Christ. We ask forgiveness when we found our identity and our security in other things, in other people, in other circumstances and situations in life that were more favorable and we didn't need to trust in you and in our identity in Christ as fully as you have placed us in a position, even recently, to cause your people to stand in the grace of God. And we pray that you would cause us to stand. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.